All right. Welcome, everybody. Today, our topic is race and the body of Christ. I put race in quotation marks for a reason that you're going to see as we proceed through this. And I put the two together, race and the body of Christ, because frankly, because of the nature of the church, it's a transnational, global entity. The church is. It, it transcends all nations in the world. We have, let's say, different races coming together as part of the church. That's the way it's put together. It's not just one homogeneous unit. So um, the other reason, of course, is that race is very much in the news today, and there's a lot of, um, you can't turn on the television these days without running into the issue of race. And in the current issue of Voice that just came out from IFCA, this issue is about uh, the critical race theory, justice in the Bible, this whole thing. It's got several articles in it. So it is a timely topic, and we want to look today at what the Bible says and what it doesn't say about race. First of all, the body of Christ. Uh, it's an interesting... I like this graphic because it shows kind of the inner workings of a body. Uh, it's an image. It's meant to be... Um, a type. It, it's it's not real in that sense, and yet it's it's talked about in First Corinthians 12. Paul talks about the the hand, the eye, the ear, the nose, the foot, as though we that's what we were. That was our contribution to the body of Christ. Uh, we could even think of it that way. The body of Christ is the church. Colossians 1:24. It is the church. So is built in such a way, the church is configured in such a way that each one of us has a part to play. And uh, not that we'll know exactly what our part is. Um, I may be some little bitty uh, cotter pen somewhere down in there. <laughs> An insignificant little part. Somebody might be the joint of a finger. Somebody might be doing something really remarkable. But for the most part, we, uh, we serve where we serve. We do what we do and make a contribution. And the Christian is both a part of the whole and part of one another. So we are obligated to the head, which is Christ, but we're obligated to each other too to cooperate, to work together. We're simultaneously individual Christians, but we're also simultaneously members of the whole. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says, now you, plural, you all are Christ's body and individually members of it. That last phrase, members of a part of it. From the, mem from, mem you know, from a part. Think of it that way. Also, we talked about this when we talked about the creation in the seven seas. All of us, all human beings, not just Christians, but everyone is made in God's image. And uh, scholars argue that the image of God is a corporate dimension, too. There's no one single human individual or group who can fully bear or manifest all that's involved in the image of God, so that there's a sense in which that image is collectively possessed, that we collectively represent the image of God. The image of God is, as it were, parceled out among the peoples of the earth. And by looking at different individuals or groups, we get glimpses of different aspects of the full image of God. 
interesting thought from Randy Alcorn in his book. So what is race? What is this word? Does it mean? According to Creation Ministries, and they've got several articles on the topic, but it's they say it's the sum of inherited physical traits that characterize people into groups according to outward features such as cranial shape, facial features, skin color, and so forth. <clears throat> A biologist would call this the phenotype, the, the, the outward appearance, what you look like. This is what our culture today is calling race. That's the kind of the contemporary definition that's circulating in our world at the present time. I've got one of these thick dictionaries. It's the unabridged at home, and it's got uh, a date on it of 1994. So I looked up race in that dictionary. It doesn't refer to the appearance at all. It refers to, it says, persons of common descent, blood, or heredity. So it's talking about our ancestry. It doesn't talk about these physical features at all. There's no word in the Bible that corresponds to the modern idea of race uh, as a group, just lumping all these physical characteristics together. There's no word in the Bible that does that. In fact, the King James Version that was uh, first came out in 1611, it, it didn't even have the word race in it. it the, the, the word race is, is there, but it's always a foot race. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a competition competitive event where people run, but it, they didn't have the word race uh, to refer to people. And uh, this was, as a Geneva Bible, the same way, same thing. But this was the basically the English Bible until 1901 when the American Standard Version came out and the word race then began to appear in the Bible. So for, for about 300 years, and, and really, <laughs> for 1900 years so far in church history, we haven't had a word in the Bible that corresponded to the current idea of race. The best modern translation that we have today, in my opinion, is the New American Standard Bible. And race appears in there six times, twice in the Old Testament and four times in the New. So what I'd like to do this morning is take a look at those six Let's look at first at the Old Testament, race in the Old Testament. Ezra 9, verse 2. If you want, you can follow along for context, or you can read the, put the verse in this uh, particular slide so you can see. Ezra 9, 2. There it's the seed. Um, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. The, the problem here was when they were, when the Jews came back to Jerusalem and were rebuilding the wall and, and reconstituting the kingdom, they were having intermarriage, and this was leading to idolatry. There was a prohibition in Deuteronomy against uh, especially the priests intermarrying because this would lead to corrupt, corrupting the priesthood and lead to idolatry. So the warning, really, the concern was idolatry here. Um, Paul also discussing marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 urges Christians to marry only in the Lord. You remember that phrase, only in the Lord. So it's the same idea. Um, 
By the way, Moses' sister, uh, there was an incident in Numbers 12 where she objected to his wife. She was a Cushite woman, which is a, to say, It's noted for very dark skin, and they, uh, she and her actually objected to this Cushite woman. And um, <clears throat> so the anger of the Lord, it says in verse 9, burned against them, and, uh, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. God brought leprosy on Miriam because of this prejudice. And so... There we have a very graphic image that uh, that should that was totally inappropriate. The next use is uh, is the word mamzer. By the way, that word seed we studied in in the seven seas quite a bit. That's that means the offspring, the the uh, descendants. This one is a child reference a child of incest. Um, this was probably, uh, it says, the mongrel race that will dwell in Ashdod, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. This was the prophecy that the Philistines who occupied Ashdod during the days of Alexander the Great <coughs> would be taken out of the land when Messiah returns. And uh, because they didn't have a nation to begin with, Wolverd and Zuck in their commentary the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, they will be absorbed into the population of God's people since there's no evidence that this was fulfilled in the invasion of Alexander. It apparently awaits the fulfillment as part of the blessing that will result from the Messianic rule that's described in Zechariah 9 verse 10. So that really, it, it has a good ending to it. These people will be, they'll have to leave that area because they have displaced the Israelis. And uh, this is something else by way of coincidence. You, you, you've probably seen in the news a lot of rocket fire between Gaza and, and Israel, and it's become an international crisis. And, uh, and some say that the, the situation is similar today as it was back then. And how is this going to be resolved? I think we have a hint in this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that these people will, when Christ returns, the remnant that's still there, and believe me, um, there will be a remnant. There will be a remnant because we have God's uh, promise that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will come to Christ. They will be absorbed. They'll be able to join in and have a place to live. Um, so we have those two references in the Old Testament. The, neither one of them refer to the physical characteristics or the color of the skin or whatever. Let's look at the New Testament. Here we have three out of the four use the word genos. That means uh, you could see in that word genealogy or something, generation. It means descendant, ancestry, posterity. Again, no reference to how you look. It's just that that's what was your offspring. Mark 7, verse 6. Um, now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So it uses the word race, but uh, she was basically just a Syrophoenician. Uh, she was not living in the land of Israel. 
Acts 7.19, this is where it's a reference to when the Jewish nation was enslaved in Egypt. And the word he, it was he that is talking about Pharaoh. When Pharaoh took shrewd advantage of our race, okay, our people, our descendants, our ancestry, and so forth, and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and not survive. He's talking about that time when they were persecuted in Egypt. Again, nothing to do with how they looked. <coughs> First Peter 2, uh, 1, 1 Peter 2, 9. It's a reference to the Christian spiritual birth. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's talking to Christians here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, it's talking about the church. It's talking about Christians. And it's referring to us there as, it's interesting that He chooses this word race, descendant, ancestry, posterity. It's kind of the idea of being born again, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it has this overtone to it. it. It would be, if we translated the word seed, in the Greek, we would probably use this word. So it does describe the new birth. The new birth has happened. I've got a, I've got a divine seed in a, in me, and this is the, the use of the word race here. Why it's important. So it's referring to Christians, all the church. And then the last one is phusis. Uh, That's the basic nature, the essential character of the person. What is that person really like? James 3 says, For every species, or refusis, of beasts and birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Well, there it's talking about the entire human race. So that's of no help to the modern understanding of race as we know it. Again, the Great Commission calls for, go, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Um, we get into Revelation and we encounter this verse, and I know I've, I've distributed these uh, bookmarks before and I'll make them available again today if you, if you didn't get these. This is a painting, I have it at the house. It's actually a print but of the original, but I like this painting because it describes the event in Revelation 5, verse 9, where there's a scene in heaven, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, open its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God, you purchased for God your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's the legacy of the work of Christ on the cross and the legacy of the church that we come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Nation means ethnos, that's the word ethnos, that's an, a foreigner, a nation, an organized nation as we would think of it. Tribe, it's an ethnic, it's a uh, foule, it's a um, ethnically related subdivision within a total community or nation united by ties of uh, blood and descent, like a clan, like a family or a clan. I spent time working in, in um, Libya and learned after soon after being there that Libya is a nation, but they're, they also are about half a dozen major tribes 
in that country. And those tribes are very, very powerful and very important and very integral to the, to the practice and the habits and so forth, the dress, the food, everything is different. In fact, in the museum in Tripoli, there's, there's a separate section for each tribe. That's how powerful the, the uh, tribal association is. People, that's the word uh, laos, the common crowd, the community, the major socioeconomic unit. And then the tongue, that's the language. What do you speak? So it's all by those specific designations that Christ is calling his church. Not one of them speaks to the way they look. The pictured here, uh, Hyatt Moore, who used to be with one of the top people in Wycliffe, he's got the Crow of Montana, the Berber of North Africa. Uh, that second one there on the left, that's from Libya. Uh, the Maasai of Kenya, China, Ecuador, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Mexico, Brazil, Papua New Guinea, uh, British Columbia, Mongolia. Got all those nations. They have an equal place at the table, do they not, with the Lord. You see, Jesus in the middle, he was a man of his day as well. He, he as it says in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, he came and was born. Uh, to Mary and we don't really know what Jesus looked like except there's a description of him in Isaiah 53 verse 2 it said it says this he has no stately form or majesty that we should look on him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him in other words it's making it's making the point that he looked normal he looked kind of average, if you will. Um, in Matthew 13, when Jesus came back to his home and went into the synagogue and was teaching there, the people became a little bit outraged because he had so much authority and they said, um, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary, his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? They're not all with us? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get the... They took offense at him, so, so he didn't really look like the Son of God. <laughs> he wasn't notable in that sense. In the uh, summer of uh, 2003, my wife and I went on a dig in Israel and... Uh, we, it was an exciting time because we uncovered an underground uh, cistern. It, the part we discovered was that where that water is over on the far right, <clears throat> and that uh, that part that went down into it, there was a manhole cover on it that we, our team actually excavated. But down below it was a, a large a vault, and there's a man standing, that's Lean Rittmeyer there standing at the opening of it, excavated all of that out, it's all underground. And um, it, it, the excavation was a place where they did, uh, they had uh, an olive press there, so that went on for several years. It was active during Jesus' time. But when the Romans came through in 69 AD on their way to Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD, they decimated this town and, um, and the people died. And they, they think that people were hiding out in this uh, cave, man-made cave. And uh, it was the year we were there, 
Uh, our team discovered uh, unearthed uh, skeletons of seven women and one teenage boy and uh, immediately had to turn it over to the Israelis <coughs> who came and finished the excavation work, gave these bones a proper burial in a cemetery and so forth. Some of our uh, team members went to the uh, funeral. And uh, they died a violent death. They were, their bones were crushed. They had arrowheads indicating they'd been shot with arrows. Some of them had been probably beaten to death with uh, the shoe studs. The Romans were brutal people, so their hideout didn't work. But they've, they've studied the height and so forth of these people. They were all pretty short. I think the average height was around five feet. And other types of excavations of periods of that day and time, 69, this was 69 AD, um, indicate that males had a height of probably around five foot three feet. Five foot three. This meant that possibly Jesus was around five foot three. It's not the picture we have of him hanging up in the uh, Sistine Chapel and some of these famous paintings of him. Tall, blonde hair, blue eye type of person. It is rather humbling when you think about this because the things that our culture about values, good looks, handsome, tall, you know, God doesn't seem to care about. And why would God allow His Son to come in such simplicity? The other thing is you, you hear it said sometimes, well, Christianity is just a white man's religion. I don't, I don't like to argue that, but if, frankly, if you ever go to Israel and just look around, I, I just went through my list of some pictures I took in Israel. Um, the ones on the top are around the, in Jerusalem. The ones down, the two on the bottom are at the, uh, this is where the, uh, the, the, um, the, the Mount of uh, Beatitudes where Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful place. It looks over the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful hill there. The man in the lower right is Japanese. Uh, there's our group right there in the middle. But I walked around. We, you make a practice when you go there reading uh, that, that sermon, that Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I walked around and I heard about five or six different languages <laughs> of being of people reading in their own tongue groups, <clears throat> reading in their own tongue. Uh, group in the middle there being baptized. That group up on the upper right is uh, from Africa. It's not a white man's religion. In fact, if you add up all the Christians in the United States and multiply it by three, that's about how many Christians there are in Africa. So when you go around the globe, you find that uh, uh, 34, 35% of the world identifies, self-identifies as Christian. And uh, Christianity is anything but a white man's religion. Not that it's important, but it's just worth noting. It's not worth arguing either, but um, I wanted to point that out. Jesus certainly did condemn racism. His disciples, when they went through, um, there was a lot of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? 
The Samaritans had, they had disobeyed God in the same way the Jews did, but, but they intermarried and so forth, and they brought back a lot of baggage from their uh, exile, and they were resented by the Jews for that. And uh, when they went through the village of the Samaritans, uh, it said they didn't receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When the disciples, uh, James and John, saw this, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? I mean, let's do something about this. He turned and rebuked them, saying, You don't know what kind of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. It clearly shows that Jesus did not share their prejudice, their racial prejudice. What does Bible, the Bible really say about race and racial prejudice? God. God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That famous verse in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that's, it's too bad that we can't see the heart, but we don't, and God does. John 7, Jesus said, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He also said, you people judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. So it's something we should avoid. Paul said, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Um, the Master's uh, MacArthur Study Bible's commentary says, we're not to evaluate people according to external human worldly standards, including race. So that's the biblical perspective on race. This is probably why race as a concept is just not mentioned. Every human's value and dignity is worth, and worth is, is frankly inherent. It's inherent because we're created by, in God's image. We're created in His image, and so we have that. Every human being has that, Christian or not. Every human's value and dignity and worth is not an achievement. We don't, we don't improve on it. We, this is the way we have been made. Psalm 139, you remember that psalm where David said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We, there are now books coming in. If there was a sequel to this little lesson today, it would be all that's being written by atheists essentially saying, we are not fearfully and wonderfully made. Picking apart the human uh, body and, and trying to trash the way we're put together. I think it's an outrage because this is something that David was praising God for. But our culture has risen up against this. Uh, it's, a, it's an evolutionary worldview on their part to think that way. Every human has been created in the image and likeness of God. This is what gives us our value. This is where our value comes from. It's not from our wealth. It's not from our looks. It's not from anything like that, our intellect. Every human's dignity and worth is infinite in that sense because it is God that we are created in the image of. But one's dignity and worth doesn't exceed anyone else's, and that we should be a sober reminder to each of us that the next guy is just as much in God's image as I am, and that we should be reminded of. 
This whole business about race, and, fr and frankly, it's tied directly to, uh, to evolution. And it's the idea that uh, somebody can be better than another, or somebody can be superior or inferior. There can be an oppressor, there can be a victim, and so forth. And maybe the guy who's the oppressor is more highly uh, uh, evolved. And um, I like this particular version of it because it shows the ape and, you know, after millions of years transitioning up to, you know, the problem is all these transitional forms can't be found. But finally to the human being, and the human being is doing something that makes sense intellectually, he's throwing away all of this garbage about it, religion. Why would you have religion if you have evolution? The two don't go together. Um, if, if this is how the human being came about, uh, we owe it to evolution and we should worship evolution, not uh, some fabrication or idea of a God somewhere that, that uh, created us. So I think this is the, the essence of it here. But it, the Bible doesn't give us a pass on this issue of time. Uh, we, we went through this uh, kind of quickly in our time in the seven seas of the biblical record of time. And I know this is a bit hard to swallow. It's a bit difficult. It's challenging to understand how our universe could be so short, 6,000 years. But if you take that number and you look at the number of generations in each dispensation from Adam to Abraham according to Genesis 5 and 11 and Luke 3 we had 20 20 people they lived a long time 2500 years of time passed and there were only 20 generations <clears throat> then because lifespans became shorter from Abraham to David a thousand years and there were 14 generations then from David to Jesus, according to Luke 3, we had 42, and that's a thousand years. It was down to 24 years per generation. That seems pretty short. So to get from Jesus to today, to 2021, I just assume 24 years per generation, and, and you come up with a number of 83, so it's about 150, 960 generations between us and Adam, according to the... According to this interpretation of the scripture, that's not enough time for evolution to do anything. <laughs> that's not enough time for any meaningful change to occur. Um, and um, there's an experiment out there, I think it's quite into the long-term evolutionary LTEE. They're using E. coli bacteria that, it's just a bacterium that grows in a petri dish, but they, they reproduce every 20 minutes. So they, they've got people working in this lab, and they've been doing this since 1988, continuously. They work in this lab, so <clears throat> as soon as the bacteria reproduce, they, they take that new bacteria and put it in a separate petri dish, throw away the old one, and they cultivate it. As 20 minutes later, there's a new generation. They put that in a new petri dish, and they keep going through all these petri dishes, and it's been going now, now for like 66,000 plus generations. And you know what they found? They're, they've still got E. coli. It's still the same thing. <laughs> They're waiting, hoping for that change, you know, for that evolutionary step. 
to take place, but they're not seeing it. Quite a, it's quite informative. If you think, you know, and that's just one little single cell bacteria. Think about the human body and the complexity that goes on. If we've had just a few, a handful, even if it's instead of 150, let's say it's 1,500 generations, that's not, that's not even scratching the surface. Darwin's book, Darwin's book talked about race. Now here we see race and evolution tied directly together because he, his title of his book, this is the picture of the original cover of it. It says, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Isn't that a racist statement? <clears throat> if you're going to cancel culture, you know, on account of race, they should do it to this guy, Charles Darwin, because here it is a very racial statement being made. The favored races for the struggle of life. And really, folks, this is what has happened because the eugenics movement came and it's it built upon this idea of evolution. And you can draw a straight line from, from the people who started eugenics to Charles Darwin. You can draw a straight line to, he had even uh, relatives that became active in the uh, eugenics movement. And then you can draw a straight line from eugenics to this uh, Third Reich that was headed up in Germany, of which World War II was fought. The idea that they had a favored race, they thought that they were the favored race, of course. You know, that's the way it would appear to be. But that was the idea. It's tied, it's tied to, together. We talked about this <clears throat> at one point. I had the, <clears throat> the book Science, Evolution, and Creationism published by the National Academy of Sciences <clears throat> in 2008. Fifteen PhD credentialed, highly qualified scientists in all fields, biology, chemistry, physics, and so forth, studying the subject of uh, evolution. And they admit no one has ever seen evolution occur. No one has ever seen it occur. Well, why is it considered scientific then? You know, that makes no sense. They just go on to say that there are certain inferences that seem to make sense, and so they're not giving it. Listen, I could, I've got a, I found a whole volume of uh, quotations from uh, committed evolutionists who are admitting the problems with evolution, that it doesn't make sense. It's, it really isn't a thing. It, it's never been documented. It's never been seen in a laboratory or documented <clears throat> to have taken place. <clears throat> and yet it still, it still continues. By the way, the word race is probably not a suitable, I've determined personally, I'm trying to not use that word because <laughs> it's not a biblical idea and uh, evolution fits the same category in my mind. It's not, it's not a realistic idea. It's not even a scientific idea. We finally come to critical race theory. And by the way, if we, I think we have some copies of this at the front of the church, and it's the current issue of The Voice magazine. You can get this and read these. There's some really good articles here on critical race theory, but um, I uh, was able to attend Andy Wood's conference uh, on, by uh, remotely. 
at Chafer. He's the president of Chafer Seminary, and he's got a law degree and a PhD. So he's pretty, he's pretty in, uh, intelligent and savvy about cultural issues. But um, this slide was in that uh, presentation. I thought it was a good way to compare critical race theory. The fundamental questions: uh, Who are we? Um, critical race theory says we're members of a group. And the Bible says we're God's image bearers. We're all individuals made in God's image. There's no really uh, way to reconcile those two. You're one or the other. These don't overlap. What is our problem? Critical race theory says we're, we have a group that's oppressed out here. The Bible tells us that it's sin. And we all have it. It's not just the oppressed people, but we all have a problem with sin. What is the new birth? Critical race theory thinks it can be worked out, something we can solve. But the Bible says, no, we're powerless to overcome sin. We have to be saved by a Redeemer. We, have, we need the intervention of a Savior to save us from sin. What is the solution? Critical race theory says liberation. We need to be liberated from this corrupt society, corrupt world that we live in. The Bible says Jesus Christ liberates us from all our problems, sin and its effects, <clears throat> both in this dispensation and in the ones to come. What is our duty? Critical race theory says to liberate the oppressed. The Bible tells us the Great Commission because, frankly, folks, we have a finite amount of time to live in this world and then it'll be over with. What happens after that? What's going to come? Uh, that doesn't even fall into the category of critical race theory. The, the emphasis there is only the here and now, this life. They're not interested in the life beyond. But we are and we must be. <clears throat> what is our purpose? Critical race theory to, to work for collective salvation, some type of collective salvation. And, uh, you know, there's no way to stop this movement, I don't think. I don't think it'll, it won't die easily. Uh, all we can do is be light and salt in this world and continue the ministry that we have uh, of the Great Commission to the world to draw men and women to Christ and to glorify God in that process. So that is our purpose. There's, again, no way to synthesize these two. And if we're tempted to fall into some sort of concordance with critical race theory and say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to agree on this point or that point or the other point, we may find ourselves slipping off into heresy. So there, it does pose a potential threat. So in conclusion, I would say this, there's no biblical concept of race as our culture defines it. The way our culture defines race, there's no, there's no word in the Bible that matches up with it. So that's the reason I'm trying to not use the word race. I'd rather be more specific, tribe, tongue, people, nation, something like that. There's no place for racism or evolution in the Bible. The Bible doesn't support it at all. The Bible doesn't support slavery either. And uh, it's a mystery to me how that ever got going, but uh, I think it was political, not biblical. If you're a human being, <clears throat> you're made in God's image. 
I should say, since you're made in God's image, you are a human being. It works both ways. And uh, therefore, equal to every other human being in that sense, you are in you are an image bearer. It doesn't matter what your skin color, or your height, or weight, or your hair color, eye color, or anything else, what you look like. It's just the fact that you are human gives you that dignity. The body of Christ is still under construction. We're, we haven't reached the end of the age. We're between the first coming and the second coming. When the second coming comes, when it arrives, the body of Christ will be complete. We will be, we will be completed at that point. So it's still growing. It's still increasing. The church is growing. New converts are coming to faith, both in time and space from every generation, from the, from the day of Pentecost all the way up to now and in virtually every country around the world, all-inclusive. It's a fully integrated, you remember that graphic at the beginning, <clears throat> that God has a, a design in mind and a purpose for each one of us in this body of Christ that we're called to be members of. Multi-generation, multicultural enterprise. It continues to this day, and it has an endpoint. Isn't that exciting? It is so exciting to me to think about this because this, there's no group or club or you know association or whatever that is that transcends time and eternity the way church church membership does. It's the greatest honor we have is to be the member of a church to be to be called by God into a relationship with Him. And so John 13, 34, and 35, I'll leave that with you. Jesus in the upper room, He said, um, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I've also loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for liberating us from our sin and our sinful ways and the problems that we were having before we came to Christ. We just thank you so much for providing a way of escape that we might be able to spend eternity with you. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength and wisdom and power to witness to the world that is dying because of sin. And help us not to be deterred from what we know and believe. In Christ's name, amen.